Welcome to the Silk and Slopes Conversations. Today we are joined by some guests who will introduce themselves in a minute, but they are from BMO, or the Bank of Montreal. Um, let's start here with you, Carol, if you could introduce yourself and give a brief uh, summary of your background. Sure. Carol Schleif, and I am with BMO Family Office, which is the subset of the wealth management division that caters to individuals and families with ultra high net worth, which we define as 30 million and up. And I have been with BMO for two years, been in the industry for 40 years as of this month, which is really scary to think about. And I took a very unnatural path into the industry with a dual major in business and equestrian science. All right, and then Young Yu. Uh, yeah, so I've uh, been with BMO for about seven years now, but prior to that and prior to academics as well, uh, I actually worked for what's now Accenture, back then it was Anderson Consulting, uh, and out in Asia I also worked for a subsidiary of a Fortune 500 company. It was very much an entrepreneurial uh, sort of business development opportunity out there that went well, but really decided I wanted to focus on finance, so I came back to the States, uh, pursued a master's and PhD in finance. I was a finance professor for several years, but decided I had that itch, I want to get back out in the practical side, the applied side of finance, and uh, have been with uh, BMO for, yeah, about seven years now. Very cool. Um, Carol, is it easier to understand like economics and interest rates and broad markets or work with horses? Ooh, kind of depends on the day. Actually, you can be Horse Whisperer, finance, economics, markets is fun, though, and it's very addictive in terms of I get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to go downstairs and lift heavy weights, and I turn on Bloomberg and start listening right away, and so, yeah. Yeah. Um, we're excited to have you guys because um, you guys know a lot about uh, how the world works as far as it pertains to, like, interest rates and government groups and patterns and data. Um, so for those that are just kind of mostly cruising the headlines, a um, bit of a schizophrenic last uh, year and a half, two years of everything's going to be the worst or we're going to be okay. It's maybe a bull market. It's something called a dual bear market. And then maybe a couple other made-up terms and terminologies. Um, but uh, I think you guys classified as a dual bear market the last uh, bit. Um, and... We're all hoping for either like a nice perfect landing or a soft landing. And uh, you guys have different views and opinions on that based on your expertise and your years of looking at the data and, and the research. Where do you guys see the rest of 2023 working out and ultimately into 2024 is like broader markets, interest rates, whatever you would like to cover with that question and answer? The first comment I would make is that hopefully we never ever have to use the word dual bear market again because what that meant was last year both stocks and bonds dis declined double digits and that hasn't happened in what, 75, 80 years? And by that strength, because normally stocks and bonds don't go down together and they did last year and I don't ever want to see another one. So I'll let Young take it from there. Yeah, that, that's right. And it, it was a tough 2022 2023, this year's obviously bounced back. There was a lot of pessimism in 2022 and concern that, you know, if you did follow the headlines a lot, that a lot of doom and gloom and even Jamie Dimon, I think at one point was out, who's the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, saying there's going to be an economic hurricane coming. And 
at that same time that that was in the headlines, we were saying quite publicly that you know we thought there was going to be a soft landing. So it was actually those are tense times, I'd say, in, in our role because we were actively promoting and, and discussing with clients something that was very different than the prevailing narrative that was in the marketplace at the time. Uh, but things have more or less played out as we've expected they play out. Now the question about what the rest of this year and next year looks like, you know, we still think there are signs of underlying stability, stability in the labor market, uh, stability in a, a lot of areas of the business market, but it's also a bit of a delicate time in the economy where a lot of the buffer uh, that the economy has has kind of been eroded. So if, if new headwinds develop, if spending takes more of a downturn than expected, which it could because student loan repayments are resuming, there, there are already some signs in terms of defaults and delinquencies you're starting to see uh, rise a bit. Um, if you couple that with some other new headwinds, uh, we could be in for a little bit of a bumpy period. But we still think the underlying stability is such that even if we get a couple quarters of a slowdown, which we think we could get here, that as we go into 2024, that stabilization should resume and show itself so that we can ultimately get on a better growth path. But I think we have to be cognizant and accepting of the fact that we're probably going to have a bit of a slowdown here over the next couple quarters. But what we're looking for is stability. You know, I think one of the things to keep in mind is my very first job ages and ages ago, my very first boss said to me, look, if you're not a long-term optimist, this is the wrong business for you. And so, and basically the underlying piece of that is markets are volatile on a year-to-year -year basis and day-to-day -day and week-to-week, -week, and it's hard to try to project, even though everyone wants to try to figure out where markets are going to go, but focus on the underlying sort of trend line and theme and understanding in our in my term in my state's terms where the puck is going not where it is but you're you're following things for where you think they're going to come because perspective wise when i started in the business the dow had just crossed a thousand and now we're at 35,000 34,000 35,000 so 34 35 fold increase in that period of time. And if you if you take the long-term trend on the markets, they tend up, especially in our capitalism, in our capitalism undergirded country here. And the people are gonna figure out a way, find a way, there's gonna be bleak and dark times in there. But the key thing is, especially as entrepreneurs, is that's what our country is, is funded on, that's where our heartbeat is. And people are gonna find a way, even in the worst sort of environments when the headlines are really awful and things are going to heck in a handbasket, houses are still gonna turn, businesses are still gonna be formed, other businesses are gonna go out of business. So the key is, is figuring out where those trends are going and how you profit from it. And it's also focusing on what you can control, which is as a person, I can control my spending. If I always spend less than I earn, I'm going to be okay. As a company, if I spend less than I earn, I'm going to be okay. If I pay attention to the balance sheet, I'm going to be okay. And so it's about paying attention to those things that you have control over. When you're putting a portfolio together, I can control costs in the portfolio. I can control how, how often I trade or where what I pay for taxes, because if I'm going to trade all the time and be susceptible to the headlines, I'm going to end up paying a lot of taxes and a lot of expenses. So it's really just focusing on those trends, too. Yeah. There's a lot there. 
um, a bit of a lifetime of learning. Um, if somebody was uh, shoveling their, uh, their sidewalk in Christmas of 2021, fell over and cracked their skull and went into a coma and woke up, let's say, July 4th of this year, and they were pretty good with finance and economics and understood a decent chunk of how the world worked, what would be their answer when you gave them a quick update? What would they say happened, theoretically? Uh, so Christmas 2021 to now, certainly interest rates are a big deal, right? That's front and center. The Fed has raised rates you know, numerous times. I don't know exactly how many since then, but we're at short-term rates above 5% now. Uh, Longer-term rates, 10-year Treasury yields are above 4%. And you know, our, our outlook is we think we're in a new interest rate regime. We do think eventually those short-term rates will come down. But we don't think we're going back to the low interest rate environment that may have prevailed you know, post-financial crisis from 2009 all the way through 2019. We don't think those days are coming back. So uh, essentially, telling that person that just woke up, you know, get better and, and deal with this new environment because you're going to have to make whatever plans, you know, purchases, housing, credit. Uh, it's going to be an environment where Inflation's higher than you're used to, uh, and interest rates are higher than you're used to, and that's probably going to be the norm for the foreseeable future. I would also add that businesses are rethinking where they're doing business, and a lot of that started in the pandemic, but it really got exacerbated because, oh, all of a sudden now we have a major war going on with Russia and Ukraine, which happened in February of 22, so after you cracked your head. Um, and that's causing a lot of people to rethink where stuff is coming from and where it's going to. And there's also a lot at play in terms of the global geopolitical blocks that are going on. You've got a lot of tit-for-tats that are happening with China deciding it'll go to the BRICS, or President Xi will go to the BRICS conference, but he's only second, sending the second-in-command to the G20. And so there's a lot of stuff going on from a macro basis in terms of where affiliations lie. There's a lot of tit-for-tat that can happen, even in technology, which should hopefully not have too much government intervention. It's not like medical devices or, or things like that that have that heavy regulation. But there is a lot of, they're in the crosshairs of the big political giants and what they're doing. Technology is getting caught in the crosshairs there. So there's a lot of potential secular change going on in businesses and then oh now we all have this new thing that's actually been at work behind the scenes for a long time but we all have chat gpt now too yeah we'll get into that in a minute um somewhere on planet earth exists people that actually have to make the the decision on on a few things um here in america that is, is the 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 federal interest rate right and ultimately somebody's going to say it's going up or it's going down and it's going to go to this percentage. Um, what is going to make them decide up or down? How long does it take this group of people to make these decisions and what factors are going into it? Yeah, I'll start off. So with the Fed and interest rate policy, I think they're in a place now where we, we think they can be comfortable at sustaining the level of interest rates where they're at for some time. Uh, certainly the September meeting, the one coming up, there's almost complete expectation they're not going to raise rates again. There's some concern that the Fed might raise rates again uh, toward the end of the year, but we actually don't think they will. And we think that enough data will come in 
on inflation softening, and not just inflation, because that's all backward-looking data, but some of the forward-looking measures that you can see in company surveys, wage pressures are starting to soften. We're seeing that as well. Uh, we think primarily that those are things the Fed's going to look at. Now, there, there are some wild-card scenarios, right? You see the price of oil, which has gone up to the upper end of its trading range. Oil is an input in so many, uh, you know, in transportation and goods production that if there were to be some supply disruption, uh, you know, further imbalance of supply and demand, and you got oil spiking up, that could actually change the dynamic of what the Fed is considering. So there's certainly risk out there. I think the Fed is a little bit too focused, I would say, on backward-looking data. Most of the forward-looking data really points to inflation coming down at a pretty meaningful clip and being at a level that's uh, much more comfortable than we had previously. Uh, but I, I think the Fed really wants to see the, the white of the eyes of inflation really come down. It wants to see hard data, sustained hard data, and not just a few months of hard data. So, and I, I, it looks at those forward-looking measures, but it discounts them. It's like, okay, that's an uncertain future. Um, to us, enough things are pointing in the same direction that although it's an uncertain future, it's a very likely future with, with inflation coming down. You know, one of the other data sets that the Fed does look look at, and it's important to remember that the Federal Reserve System, you hear about this Federal Open Market Committee, and they're the ones that set interest rates, but it's composed of regional Feds, and those regional feds on a monthly basis are reaching out to all the CEOs, all the companies, all the industries in their districts, getting feedback on, hey, tell us about your supply chain. Hey, tell us about your ability to get workers. What's new this month? What's going on? So they're getting a lot of data. Those fed presidents and fed representatives from those regional feds, in two ways you can see it. As a consumer on the outside, you can subscribe to the Beige Book. It's free, and it makes for scintillating reading 10 times a, a year. So it's very, it actually, if you're, if you're nerdy and like this stuff, it does make for some interesting reading. But those Fed officials also go to those Fed meetings, and it's really interesting because I heard one of the Fed governors being interviewed this morning, and he said, look, the, the full meeting minutes don't get released until five years after, but you can see, you can request those documents, you can see from reading those that a lot of those regional Fed people are laying in saying, you guys are looking at this data, but here's what we're hearing and here's where we disagree. So there's a lot more conversation that goes on in those meetings, but I think it's really important to remember that they're not just looking at the macro data, they are actually trying to stay plugged in and they have a better source each of the individual feds does different levels of economic research too. So depending on what kind of business you're in, you have an ability to go to those fed websites and download some really great data sets and lots of great research that they do on different topics that are applicable to, to a variety of businesses. That's interesting. Okay, if I could also mention, and those are great points, I could, it's worth remembering that what the interest rate that the fed controls is the short-term interest rate, right? And that's the what's called the Fed fund, it's essentially a, an overnight rate, very short-term rate. So short-term rates are very much determined by the Fed, but the longer-term rates, which affect mortgages, affect uh, other lending that, that people have, if they're not short-term loans, even medium-term or longer-term loans or mortgages, um, those are market-determined. So even though we expect the short-term rates, the Fed at some point next year will probably start a very, very gradual path of lowering interest rates. 
we're actually not expecting those longer term rates to come down. We think those longer term rates are actually more likely to go up than go down from here. So I think that's an important distinction to keep in mind that um, those longer term rates, the supply and demand dynamics, and the regime I think that we're in uh, still speak to those longer term rates staying where they are, even moving higher from here. So if you were going to buy a house, would you buy a house right now or in a year from now? Actually, one of the best phrases I've heard recently is date the rate, buy the mortgage, or buy the house, date the rate, because you can always refinance. And so I think a piece of it is, is just to really carefully understand what you can, what you can absorb. And one hint that I learned early on, too, is a bank is always going to overqualify you for what you can do. So just make sure when you're looking at that pre-qualification level, you know what you can reasonably afford and understand that when you have a house. So I, I, the, the interesting thing is, and again, my perspective is distorted because my very first mortgage was 12% because it was in the 80s coming off of those 20% mortgages. I thought I died and went to heaven a year later when I got to refinance to eight. And my current mortgage is two and five eighths that I got in the middle of the pandemic. It's pretty great. And but I've been able to pick off those mortgages for the last twenty or twenty-five years. So if if you just focus on what you want to do, it's really more a question of what you need to do with your life. If you, you know, want to get married, have a kid, then you probably want a backyard, a grill, and a dog too. That usually means a mortgage. It's a vicious cycle. Um, by the way, we're going to open up for questions uh, in a few minutes. Um, even though this is not like softballs right down the middle, there's like finance and economics and data. Get your questions ready because I can tell you guys have some. Um, if you're going to go off headlines again, which is better than a poke in the eye, you've got um, commercial real estate is the next pending time bomb, theoretically, or it's student loans. Who, it depends on the writer and the day. But um, you can also observe the commercial real estate with your own eyeballs. Um, what are your guys' thoughts on the doom and gloom or just the overall like hybrid work remote economy not ever really going away and like actually having some uh, calamities as far as like commercial real estate in the future? Well, keep in mind, commercial real estate isn't a monolith. It's not all downtown office space. There's, I mean, it looks pretty healthy around here. And you, and one of the interesting stats I heard recently is that while the commercial real estate vacancy rate in downtown Salt Lake City is double digits, the visits to the downtown core are up 139% from pre-pandemic. So a lot of people are going into that downtown core Coming from Minneapolis, we also had George Floyd on top of the pandemic. And then we had the Derek Chauvin trial a year or so later. So our downtown is just devastated. There's not even a convenience store. When I go into the office, I have to bring my own water because there's not even a place to go buy water other than the marked up few coffee centers that are still there. But so it's really important to remember that that there's pieces of it that are still doing okay. Nationally, the vacancy rate, this surprised me, the vacancy rate of retail um, commercial real estate is 5% because you've soaked up a lot of the stuff that got built in the 90s and the 2000s. It's been repurposed, 
and people are finding, I mean, you've even got online retailers that are finding they need a physical presence to be able to show their stuff. So it's really important to remember that you can't talk about it in one piece, but I'll let you comment on. Yeah, that's right. The distinctions both within commercial real estate. I do think the hybrid work model is here to stay. And I do think there's going to be an increasing bifurcation among cities. I think the fortunes of cities and the, the virtuous versus you know, sort of uh, difficult spirals that cities can get into, I think those are going to continue to play themselves out. And I, I, think, uh, I think fortunately for you know, Salt Lake City, we're, we're seeing some good trends here. Uh, but there's some cities I think you know, it, it's, a, it's a long process for stabilization. And, and how that translates into, you know, are, is it going to be you know, sort of nightmare scenario? I think the challenge is going to be more felt at the uh, small and regional bank level in the areas that are especially struggling. Because small and regional banks, of course, their lending by, by nature just tends to be the area where they're located. And they're the ones who over the past decade or so have really taken the mantle of lending to, in commercial real estate. The big banks, um, you know, BMO included, have really kept their portfolios of lending very diversified. But the regional and small banks have really you know, double, triple down in, in the lending in the commercial real estate. So to the extent that a lot of that refinancing is gonna be taking place over the next couple of years, uh, at least in the office space, a lot of that is gonna be refinanced at rates that no longer would make sense there are going to be losses that are going to have to be absorbed. They're going to have to be absorbed from either the owners, the banks, a combination of those. And it, we don't expect it to be – the good thing about commercial real estate, it's not a, it's not a typically a force selling, you know, massive force selling all at once. These things, there's not a, a sort of one week, day, month triggering event. But it's a slow-moving grind, right? And so we do think that – you know, it does present a challenge for small and regional banks to deal with this. And what that means is other companies that rely on these small regional banks, that challenge is going to sort of filter through as well. So, you know, we're, we're looking at markers to see how restrictive or, or manageable these things are working out. But we do think it's a headwind and not one that's going away. I mean, it's going to be with us for... Uh, a little while, but it's it's really the small regional banks that are front and center. There. Interesting. Let's talk about a few things that we don't think will go away, and that's AI. So what I'm gathering with you guys is um, you're dialed in on a lot of uh, the big, impactful stuff that requires like kind of a, a long time to learn and understand and see. You've mentioned filtering through um, certain things. Uh, some poor entrepreneur somewhere along the chain has no uh, control over, right? And uh, one of those might be AI, which would impact like your guys' research and how the bank operates and works. Um, when did you guys start thinking about it? What are your general thoughts? And are there any like uh, red flags or are there any like really cool things that people aren't seeing? Um, in, in relation to AI development, is that right? And how it'll impact like the economy or certain businesses that you guys interact with and how you guys will kind of monitor and, and adjust. Yeah, I, I think one, I, certainly it's, it's here to stay, as you say, and I think it's only going to accelerate in terms of importance and how it permeates the economy. One thing to keep in mind, and this happens throughout technological developments, is there 
there's a period where the technology comes out, it starts to be implemented. It's a big cost for companies, right? And it's a learning curve. But the actual benefits don't start accruing until later, right? You might see some benefits in productivity, but when can that really scale up? Uh, this tends to take a few years. It might be a little bit quicker with AI, but I still think you're on that trajectory. So I, I think now even you're, you're seeing in the stock market some pullback in the AI stocks and, and not all of them, some are holding up better, but, um, but you're seeing I think that somewhat of a lull period where people are saying, well, how quickly is this promise gonna get delivered on? When are we gonna start seeing the results? When are we gonna start seeing this monetized? I think the reality is when it starts to really hit the economy is going to be, it's still, it's still a ways off, probably a couple years off. But when it starts to impact people's daily lives is gonna be before that, you know, probably you know, by the end of next year. And in each subsequent year, I, I think people's lives are gonna be increasingly changed by how AI is being incorporated into that. But I think we should remember that the, the economic benefits that, that accrue to companies and to the macro economy, they're gonna be there. Right? There's, but there's going to be this lull period because it always happens. Right? People think, oh, well, what's happening? How come you're not profiting off this? Or how come we're not seeing better productivity gains? Um, those are going to come, but I think we're going to see that lull period over the next year or so where people are skeptical about it. And maybe that's just beginning now, um, but we're very bullish in the medium term. But I think there's a typical cycle we have to go through. Yeah. Well, and I think there's all, it's also important to remember when you have a new technology coming on, like when mainstream started to realize about the internet and we still had to use dial-up and it took like a minute or two to load a page when you hit enter, it was tough to envision that everybody was gonna need an internet strategy, but then all of a sudden processing, um, storage got cheap, processing power was really quick, and then this cool thing called the iPhone was invented and we all started getting mobility in what we were doing. And the entire way that we work, the way that we interact with companies is entirely different now than it was even 20 or 25 years ago. AI is gonna have that kind of impact amped up like a new technology does, but as far as the investable places, it's tough from an investment standpoint, but it's gonna to touch all kinds of different corners. You can think through, are you gonna need paralegals to look up case precedent? Or are you gonna be able to, to queue up AI to do it? If you're a doctor, are you gonna to have to go research different potential um, maladies for the specific, specific skill set or a specific suite of, of symptoms presented to you or is AI going to do it? So you think about the people that get displaced from certain industries, but we need technology um, workers amped up in different ways and you think about other things like do we as a society need to morph to where we have apprenticeships because we need a lot more electricians, we need people who can service the green grid that we're going to build out. We have a lot different needs for the way things are gonna go. So I think as, as we think about its impact on us on a day-to-day -day basis, and I wouldn't be shocked at all to learn if half, the, half or three quarters of the companies that are serving us right now are someplace in the back room using some form of AI to either generate the ads that come to us or a variety of other things. But when you think through right now who's gonna benefit from it, it takes an immense amount of data processing power. It takes an immense amount of clean data because you have to train these, these, um, the different models. And so there's a lot of work that's being, and a lot of iterations going on there. And we're trying to 
trying to learn too because we're trying to figure out what do we regulate, what what do companies self-regulate, does the government get in and try to regulate. So there's a lot to consider. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've got a few more questions, but let's uh, open it up for questions in the back. Hi, just a question about, I guess, what is your sentiment of digital assets, particularly Bitcoin, and if you're seeing that demand from your clients and people that you work with? We were seeing a lot of when Bitcoin was peaking, if you will, we were having a lot of inquiry, and I was kept trying to turn it. And I know both of us had a lot of inquiry from the media all the time, too, about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. But taking it down to the underlying, I'm a lot more interested in blockchain and Web 3.0 and the build out of that as opposed to one specific iteration. Because to me, looking back, it's like saying, ooh, I want to invest in email instead of I want to invest in the infrastructure build out of the internet. And, and so from that perspective, and I'll let you handle the digital coin ones because we hear that question a lot. We get some interest from from clients, but it's really, we try to direct it more into the, and, and I know there's a lot of work from the macro level because um, our partners, BMO Canada, has, has a, at the top of the house, committee looking at how are we going to deploy it internally and, and externally. But I'm, as an investor and as a portfolio constructor, a lot more interested in in blockchain itself and what can be done with that technology and how we deploy that, because I don't think that's going away. Yeah, we do get some client inquiry about uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, it, it's tricky because from a valuation standpoint, you can come up with a tremendous range of valuation. Um, I would say, you know, at the end of the day, from a portfolio standpoint, it's not something that we go out of our way to either recommend or put in client portfolios. Um, I think, you know, is there a case for cryptocurrencies, digital currencies becoming more pervasive? I think there's a reasonably strong case. I, associating that with a rise in the price of uh, cryptocurrencies isn't quite as tight a link as I think people tend to think sometimes, that pervasiveness means higher price in this case. Um, and if you think about, like, why do stocks go up over time? Carol talked about this previously, right? Why, why is it that the Dow is at 1,000, Dow is at 35,000? Why does this make sense at all? It's because there's a risk premium that's priced into companies and earnings so that when you put money in this, you're actually earning money for taking a risk. And when you're looking at companies' earnings, they're being discounted to present value, taking into account that you should, as an investor, earn money from taking on this risk, right? That's not present in any currencies, first of all. I mean, maybe you could say some emerging market currencies, you might get a tiny risk premium. But in general, in currency markets, that's, that risk premium is not something that's present. You don't get paid as an investor to take on this risk. So that, I think that's going to be the same in digital currencies. And, you know, there's a place where supply and demand meet and, you know, what, how does this actually play out? Is it around current levels, higher or lower? I think that remains to be seen. But I think if you're looking at the long term, you're not getting this risk premium. You're not going to get this risk premium that's going to play out over years and decades. So it's not something as a long-term investor I think makes a lot of sense. If someone has a speculation or, or understanding of 
you know, where a certain technology is going over the short term and believe something is, is really going to gain a lot of traction and, and be in a very different place a year from now than it is today, I think that's fine. I mean, that's, you know, someone's individual knowledge might point to an ability to capitalize on that, but that is not something that is across the board and a long-term trend. So it's not something we're kind of focused on from a portfolio standpoint. And correct me if I'm wrong, but as a finance professor, former finance. It, for, as former reformed finance professor, isn't currency basically a closed loop where if one currency goes up, another has to go down? I mean, is, is it? Well, it's, it's all, they're always in relation to something, right? So Bitcoin versus the U.S. dollar or U.S. dollar versus the euro or Bitcoin versus Ethereum, right? I mean, there's always some relation there, right? And you can get the case where something goes up and stays up. Right. Right now we have, you know, the Japanese yen is very low on a historical basis. Right. So and, and it's, you know, it's been that way for a little while, but it's particularly low now. You could have the case where, you know, Bitcoin went to thirty five thousand and stayed there. Right. And, and that could just be the new equilibrium level. And yes, bounces around over time, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit higher. Um, but it's always in relation to something. Right. And that, I think um, where that where those ultimate levels settle. I think it's, it's just very tricky because you have supply and demand. You have, you, have, you have kind of niche areas where people do want to hold it as a sort of uh, analog to gold, for example, where they might want to hold it for you know, purposes of kind of uh, wealth preservation or, or you know, preparing for a time or when you know, financial markets might struggle and this might not struggle. Um, so, so, but the other challenge with, with digital currencies are very easy to create, right? And, and so the, I, I've never completely bought into the uniqueness of digital currencies because you know, they, they went from a handful to a dozen to hundreds to thousands, right, in a very short period of time. Something that's that easy to create, yes, you can have scarcity in any individual one, right? You have scarcity in Bitcoin, but across the board, you don't have scarcity. You have ultimate non-scarcity. So, is a is an overall class again it goes back to i'm not enthusiastic about where it's going to be 10 years from now across the board but you know i don't discount the idea that someone can have specialized knowledge that they can profit off of i do think that's very possible very interesting so a couple questions back to the student loans would you know, during the financial crisis, you know, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, like people could declare bankruptcy and get out of debt. You can't do that with student loans and people that have a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars in debt. Like, if they can't pay it, how does that get covered? And then the other question is on: Do you think the U.S. would ever go to a, a standard digital currency if the dollar loses value? The student loan thing. It, the interesting thing is, is there have been. You know, there was this long-term program I know that was involved where it was you were supposed to be able to pay as a percentage of of your income, and if you'd paid that for 20 years, the remainder was supposed to be forgiven. That system got so screwed up, and now the Biden administration has come back in and fixed that and, and has forgiven something like 800,000 loans, so there's that piece of it. The presumption would be the remaining out there for for those that where the payments resume next month is that theoretically they'll have to be able they'll either be put into that program if their income doesn't suffice or they 
they pay that. And then it, uh, with a lot of those, at least the student loans at the federal level, the government would end up ultimately eating it in the long, in the long run if, if they default. But um, I don't know if you have other comments. The, the, on the defaults are high among student loans. I mean, they're double digits. Um, I mean, they're not during the pandemic because the, the payments stopped, right? Um, but I do, I do think we're going to see a resumption of high default rates. I think that's going to bleed over into credit card defaults, uh, bleed over into auto loan defaults. I mean, it's interesting. We actually looked at debt levels over the past 10 years, and we looked at student loans and you know, auto loans, credit card loans. And, and of course, student loans have gone up dramatically, right? The only thing that's gone up more than student loans are auto loans. Um, you know, student loans have sort of you know, doubled over this time period. Auto loans have more than doubled over this time period. So. There are some vulnerabilities there, um, but I think, as, as Carol mentioned, a lot of people are going to be on this pay as a percentage of income plan. Um, they cannot be wiped out in bankruptcy. The only thing you can do is kind of restructure your your other debts, and then you, you know they, you're back on this payment plan, right, to some degree. Um, so it, it's it's definitely a drag on, on the economy, and I, I think it's a reality of a lot of debt being taken out that is a challenge to repay. Now, you know, where, where does the problem lie? I think ultimately the problem lies with higher education being too expensive. I think that's, if you want to say, where's the ultimate problem? Um, you know, how does that get fixed? I think that's a slow road, but I, I do think that is something that, that is kind of a, a big nugget to crack that, that probably, you know, in, in my lifetime should be cracked and will be cracked. But I think the, the ultimate reality is the delivery of higher education in America is just too expensive. And, you know, it's it's not that it's 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 not that it's in most cases worth it. It's that it creates such a tremendous burden that it's a drag on the economy. And that's where we are now, right? You can only kick the can down so far. Well, and you you are that bingo. You are starting to see a lot of rational, or at least theoretical rationalization, a lot of programs cut, a lot of people trying to figure out how to get the budget back in order. I actually um. I sit on the board of a private college in central Minnesota, and and they're doing a major curriculum rewrite and a major rethink of being a four-year residential college because of the fact that, you know, coming out of a college like that with $200,000 in debt to go be a teacher, you're never going to pay that debt off. And so there's th that the, the biggest problem and frustration I have in sitting on that board is Education does not move at the pace of business, and to get the rationalization there is going to take way too long. Hi, my name is Leo Chan. I'm actually a current finance professor, so I want to ask interesting questions. Um, since you brought up Japan, and I want to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, first, where do you see international opportunities are? And then second, um, because of the Evergrande and Country Garden defaulting events, and people are suddenly comparing China to Japan's lost decades. What are your thoughts on uh, both uh, issues? Um, I'll start off. I think from an investment standpoint, we're actually pretty favorable on Japan now. It's one of the few areas where there are substantial reforms that are taking place. There are corporate governance reforms, uh, M&A activities picking up, and, and you know, there's wage inflation, which is good for Japan, and, and they're actually seem to be getting out of that you know, sort of lost decade period in a way that's sustainable. So from an investment standpoint, uh, you know, now's a tricky time for investing. It's not that anything looks like it's a slam dunk, but as far as risk reward goes, I would say Japan looks decent here. Um, 
and, you know, and what about China falling in, the second part of the question, China falling into that, uh, the concern that Japan had where they get in this slower growth environment, demographics are working against them. Um, it's, it's tricky, uh, you know, China's a tricky case here. Growth is still high in an absolute level, but it's decelerating and the property sector is so large that it's gonna be a drag for quite some time. I do think that there are areas of the Chinese economy which are, are healthy and will continue to be healthy. So I think the question is, when can this property sector drag stabilize, which probably looks like it's you know, a couple years in the making still, because it's such a tremendous part of the economy. I mean, property in China is overbuilt by easily 30%. Like there's just too much home construction. And people have viewed this historically is a long-term asset. You know, buy an apartment, just sit on it the way you would sit on a, you know, Apple stock and it's gonna make you money. That's no longer the pervasive sentiment and people are looking to unload the properties that they've owned and thought of in this way. So it's gonna be a drag for a while. I don't think China's gonna undergo the same experience, you know, lost decade type experience. I think there's too much kind of, you know, at the end of the day, you know, entrepreneurial impetus and, and, and underlying dynamics that will ultimately resume once some of those headwinds uh, aren't as prominent as they are today. But I think that's gonna take time because the property sector and that imbalance was just so huge that it, it just takes a while to work through. I mean, we even saw that in the, in the financial crisis here in the US. I mean, that property sector issue took a long time to work through, right? The, the housing sector didn't bottom until 2011, right? And you know the crisis started in 2008, 2009. So you know even that took a while to bottom. So you can see that this is going to be a drag uh, for a while there. But I'm not I'm not long term. You know for China's economic prospects, I'm not long term negative on China. Um, I think that would be I think that would be a mistake. Anything to add there, Carol? Yeah. All right. Um, last question for me. Um, if you can answer it semi quickish, it's more entertaining. With everything we've talked about, um, predictions in two, in, you only get a, two animals, a bull or a bear, but you can say why you think it's bullish or bearish based on uh, a few indicators and your thoughts. We'll start with you. The next year, is it going to be bullish or bearish and why, Carol? Uh, bullish because I'm a long-term optimist because I'm still in the industry. And I think a piece of it is, is there's, um, the, the thing I keep coming back to is we are investing a substantial amount in the infrastructure and the productive capacity of the United States. And we haven't teed up spending like this. We haven't picked industries we wanted to own and tried to bring them back here for decades. And so that, I think, gives us a solid, as Young's mentioned a couple times, that sort of solid underpinning on things. Bullish as well, but don't get carried away. I mean, things are not going to be uh, gangbusters through the roof. If they're looking like they're going in that direction, that's probably a head fake, and, and, and probably things are a bit more optimistic than the underlying reality. But overall, bullish. Thank you. Young, Carol, thank you so much. This has been fun, a nice little gear shift for us into the layer that we don't often talk about here on this stage. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you.